Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode we'll be discussing the 2008 K2 mountaineering disaster. Over the course of 24 hours, 11 mountaineers from several different expeditions would die whilst trying to summit K2. This was the worst single accident in the history of K2 mountaineering. So let's have a, have a look into it and see, see what happened. So Gerard McDonnell had been on K2 for eight weeks before his team attempted their summit bid. Gerard was a friendly Irishman who had summited Everest in 2003, and he had already attempted K2 once before, but unfortunately he had been hit by falling debris and had to be evacuated. He was really popular in the camp, and he regularly entertained everyone by playing the drum and telling lots of stories. On the 31st of July 2008, Gerard and his group decided to attempt a bid for the summit. So before we go into the details of the day of the 31st of July, I just want to spend a bit of time discussing K2 and discussing how the the mountain was climbed and, and what they did to kind of put it together. So K2 is on the border uh, between China and Pakistan, and it's the second highest mountain in the world, obviously, after Mount Everest. It's one of only 14 peaks that's over 8,000 metres in height, and they tend to be kind of grouped together into this, you know, group of 14 that a lot of people try and tackle all of the mountains that are over 8,000 metres together. And so whilst it is shorter than Everest, um, only slightly, it's generally considered to be a much more advanced climb. So it's generally thought that, um, you know, it's it's really the mountain that you go to when you want to be challenged and it's the mountain that the mountaineers go to. Uh, sometimes it can be, you know, heard that Everest has been quite commercialised and, you know, you can go on a tour up Everest, whereas K2, you know, you only really go unless you are very serious about it. And the reason people are very serious about it is because it is known as one of the deadliest mountains in the world. So I think the stat is kind of crazy, but basically one person dies for every four people who reach the summit. So, you know, if you went with a group of four people, you were pretty, you know, guaranteed that one of you wasn't going to come back, which to me seems like quite terrifying odds, but clearly a lot of people, you know, like the sound of that and want to head up there. And one of the reasons why it's so dangerous is just that it suffers from very bad weather. Um, It's one of the, it, it, it actually is the only mountain in the whole world that hasn't been summited in winter, just because the weather is just so terrible. And most of the summits happen in the summer between July and August. So when mountaineers try to attempt a peak of this size, they generally are climbed in the same same vague kind of way. So usually there will be a set of camps that are set up. And so these camps will uh, be at different kind of heights up and down the mountain. And what the climbers will do is that they'll try and acclimatize themselves to the altitude. Uh, because obviously, as, as you get higher, it, it's harder for the body to function. It's harder to, you know, keep keep going, basically. So they acclimatize themselves by basically climbing up and down between each of the camps. So they'll they'll set a camp, camp one, pretty near the bottom, set up camp two, and then kind of go back and forth between them so that they can get used to the altitude and that they're ready to keep on climbing higher. Um, and that helps stop a lot of the, you know, afflictions that you can get from climbing these mountains. So things like altitude sickness, things like, uh, you know, different kind of pulmonary edemas and, and things like that. Between the, the camps, 
what they tend to do is they tend to use fixed ropes. So the more advanced climbers will go first and as they climb, they will set fixed ropes into the mountain and then those that follow will basically clip themselves onto the fixed ropes and carry on up behind them. And that obviously just helps with safety um, and, and helps the, not not just safety for in case they fall off, but also safety in terms of, you know, the route is then mapped out and people know where they're going and they can get safely from camp to camp. Alongside those, they also tend to use supplementary oxygen. There's one third of the oxygen at the top compared to the bottom. So there's, you know, a lot less at the top compared to the bottom. Um, And especially in what is known as the death zone, which is the bit of the mountain that's over the 8,000 metres, you know, that's the bit of the mountain that just has just no oxygen at all. And that is really the the area which, as you can tell by the name Death Zone, is is not a place you want to spend very long. So they tend to take supplementary oxygen with them so that they can, you know, get a bit more oxygen when they are climbing at those really high levels. Not everyone does. Um, it, you know, it's very controversial from what I can read about in the mountain community as to whether you use supplementary oxygen or not, but generally it is pretty common and most climbers will use it. Now K2 is like Everest in that they um, have the high altitude porters, so very similar to, to Sherpas on Everest. They tend to use high altitude porters and these high altitude porters tend to help uh, with things like the ropes, the equipment, making sure that they can navigate safely up and down the mountain. Everything we've just talked about then, that is basically all the things that the group we're going to talk about now did in in their bid for the K2 summit. So they set up a series of camps, they were using fixed ropes between the camps, they were generally using supplementary oxygen, and they did have some high altitude porters with them. So in 2008, over 200 climbers headed to K2 to their advanced base camp, which sits at about 5,000 metres above sea level. In an ideal world, all of those groups that came to the mountain would split their climbs and each of them would ascend over different days. So they basically, you know, figure out between them, okay, I'm going to ascend on this day, you're going to ascend on that day, so that they could, you know, keep keep space and keep the mountain, you know, relatively clear and, and easy moving. But unfortunately, in 2008, the weather was particularly bad. So it blocked a lot of the summit attempts that usually would happen in June. A lot of the the people that tried to go in that period just were unable to go. So now it was getting to, you know, middle of July and a lot of people were very keen to, to try and summit relatively soon. So what happened is that it led to several groups trying to band together and basically saying that they would all work together and all try and summit on the same day as one large group. And this included uh, climbers from all around the world, including the US, France, Pakistan, Italy, Serbia, the Netherlands and South Korea. So quite a lot of, of different people, different cultures, different, you know, attitudes towards climbing. And 25 people would attempt to summit on the same day. So the group had been on the mountain for a reasonable amount of time at this point. They'd done their acclimatization, 
all the way up to camp four. So they were already pretty high on the mountain. They were at the top camp prior to, to going to the summit and they were going to summit directly from there. They should be able to summit and get back to camp four within one day. And so before that day, they negotiated and decided that a mixed group of the nine strongest climbers across all the different groups would be the ones to head up first and set up all of the fixed ropes. And that would then allow the rest of the climbers to follow on behind. So it started off badly because that leading group started off late. So they climbed through the night before to then summit during the day. So they started after midnight when they should have started at midnight. And the group basically set off late, but they started setting up all of the fixed ropes and made their way, you know, a reasonable amount up the mountain to an area called the bottleneck. And the bottleneck was the hardest part of the climb. It was a a very narrow, rocky path, and it was notoriously dangerous mainly because not only was the climb itself very tricky and very unstable, but the whole pathway was underneath a very unstable serac. I hope I'm saying that right. Should have googled it and listened to someone say it. But basically a serac is, it's like big blocks of ice. So there was like huge, almost like a glacier hanging above this bit of the path up to probably not a path, makes it sound a bit too easy, Um, (laughs) above this bit of the mountain prior to to where where they were going. And it's very, it was very common on this bit of the path for the Seracs to fall off and then for that Seracs to potentially hit people that were on the bottleneck. And really, because of the size of it, there was no, you know, solution or nothing they could do in order to make this safer so basically the best solution on this was to just climb as quickly as possible just get get through it spend as less time as possible in this bit of the climb just keep getting up so when the leading group that were fixing the ropes got to the bottleneck it was clear that they had a new problem and that they didn't have enough rope so And this was caused by a combination of things. Some of them said that, you know, some of the groups weren't bringing enough supplies and they just hadn't brought enough in the first place, whereas some argued that they had started laying the ropes in in an area that didn't need them. So, you know, an area that was relatively easy to climb. They were putting ropes when they didn't need to be there. But it caused a problem because they needed ropes to get through this bit of the climb and they didn't have them. So it was only at 3 a.m. when the rest of the 25 had already started climbing, that they found a solution, which was basically for someone to go down, get the ropes from the bit of the climb where they didn't need them, and then take them back up to where they were. But this obviously caused even more delays whilst they waited for the ropes to be brought back up to them so that they could continue on climbing. So the disasters started from about 8am when a Serbian climber called Dren Mandic He unclipped himself from the rope in order to pass another climber called Cecily. And basically what she was, you know, going slow, presumably. He wanted to to check on some of his equipment. He wanted to move past her. So he unclipped himself from the rope. And unfortunately, right at that moment, he lost his balance and he fell off the mountain. He fell almost 100 metres down, down the bottleneck and down out below them. And so it was quite hard for the climbers to see if he was okay but 
some of the climbers that were on the mountain then did think that they could see him moving. And so because of that, they decided that they should send a rescue party down after him. So when that rescue party got down to where he was, um, it was clear that he had sadly died from, from the injuries from his fall. For a lot of climbers, they too tend to leave the bodies on the mountain, but because it was such a like a, a nice day, the weather was very nice, it was very clear, the group decided to try and lower him down to Camp 4 so that they could recover his body and take it home. But one of the group that was doing this was a high-altitude porter named Jihan Baig, and while they were descending with the body... Jihan was, you know, he was exhibiting some really odd behavior. So he was being incoherent. He was like arguing with the with the other climbers. He was holding onto ropes and not, you know, like pulling the rest of them down. But basically, he eventually let go of the rope that they were all, all holding and fell to his death. The other climbers think that this was probably from high altitude sickness because that can make you very confused and can, um, you know, stop you from making rational decisions. And so he fell to his death. So at this point, the remaining three climbers that were doing that rescue abandoned the bodies and they descended back down to Camp 4. So generally all summit bids should happen as early as possible. So the aim is to get to the summit as early as you can so that you can then make sure that you've got more than enough time to descend and make it back to camp. So usually on K2, they aim to summit somewhere between 3 and 5 p.m. to then give them time to get back down. However, on this day, due to all the delays, all the drama, all the tragic events that happened uh, the first climber that reached the summit was actually at 4:30 so right on the cusp and the rest continued up after after them and so that meant some of the latest climbers were summiting as late as 7:30 or 8 p.m very late into the evening um, and that included Gerard McDonnell right at the end there and it it meant that the majority of the climbers would be descending back down the mountain in the dark each of them hit the summit they then started slowly heading back down in the order they came up and you know they were pretty slow at this point they'd already been climbing for 18 hours you know they were just ready to get back to to camp four so at 8 30 p.m cecily skog who we talked about earlier was going down the mountain with her husband a man called rolf bay and they had only been married for a month when they took to the mountain. And as they worked their way down the bottleneck, unfortunately, one of the seracs, one of the big pieces of ice that was hanging above it, fell off. And this swept Rolf Bay away and killed him. And so the mountain at this point had claimed three lives. And I just think that that's so tragic that they had only just been married and, yeah, he died in front of her, which is just really really sad and she's done quite a lot of interviews actually and done some amazing achievements um since then like you know crossing antarctica and aided and all of this amazing work she yeah she's very interesting if you want to read about her but one of the other things that happened as part of this accident is that it had a really big ramification in that it it cut the fixed ropes so it cut the ropes which the other climbers were using to descend this meant that anyone that was behind Cecily and Rolf 
did not did not have any ropes to get through the bottleneck to get through that really hard bit of the climb in the dark. So at this point, there were still 15 climbers who were behind Cecily and who were up towards the top of the mountain in the death zone. And so when they got to the bottleneck where they thought they would, you know, find the ropes and be able to continue down, there were no ropes. And they then had a very hard choice to make. So they had to decide whether to try and climb down the bottleneck in the dark with no ropes and potentially, you know, fall to their deaths just with ice picks and crampons or wait above the bottleneck um, until the morning light came to try and find the ropes and go down in a better condition. But, you know, they didn't have, you know, camping equipment. They didn't have anything that they could, you know, safely stay in. It was going to be a very cold and wet time on the top of that mountain. So the group was split. Uh, Eight decided to stay above the bottleneck and bivouac. And that's word on the slopes, which basically just means that some of them might have um, had, you know, some small like sleeping bags or, or you know, at least um, like windproof material that they could sit within in order to try and last through the night out in the cold and not, you know, freeze and lose all of their fingers and toes. But then some did decide to carry on climbing down in the dark. And this tended to be the more experienced mountaineers carried on down um, and they were, you know, were fine to do that in the dark and, and some of them were successful. So six of the climbers that were stuck above made it down to camp four by climbing without any fixed rope in the dark. However, there was one out of that group. So there were seven that went, but one was not so lucky to make it all the way down. Uh, a French climber called Hugh Dobardet. Uh, slipped and fell during that descent in the night. So it's now the next morning. We've still got eight climbers on the mountain. We've got, unfortunately, four deaths so far, mainly from um, either the ice falls or from falling whilst climbing in the bad conditions. And what happened in the next morning it's quite confusing and it's it's mixed lots of mixed stories as to what actually then happened with those climbers that were above the bottleneck and so the story comes from one of the climbers called Wilco van Ruen who basically left very early and because he feared he was going snowblind and snowblind is basically where if you've been out in you know very bright reflective area your eyes just you know, it can cause blindness and it can cause your eyes to stop working. And Wilco knew that if he didn't get down and get out of that, you know, that environment, he was going to go snowblind and then he wouldn't be able to get down. So he was keen to get down as quickly as possible from where he was. So he couldn't find the ropes, but he just started descending anyway. And when he was partway down the bottleneck, he came across three Korean climbers who were all tangled in kind of remnants of ropes And, you know, they were a mess. They were bloodied. Some of them were hanging upside down and clear they had been hanging upside down for a long time in these ropes. And Wilco didn't really know what was happening. It wasn't wasn't clear what led the climbers to be found like this, whether they had, um, you know, been hit by an avalanche, been hit by an ice fall, or whether, you know, they just made a mistake and fallen. But basically, you know, these climbers were stuck. And Wilco, you know, in his state, basically said he couldn't stop to help. Uh, So he spoke to them, he gave them some kit, he did as much as he could do in order to help them, but he then had to keep on descending, otherwise he was not going to get down. So following behind Wilco 
There were two climbers climbing together, Marco Confortola and Gerard McDonnell, and they both started descending a little while afterwards. They also encountered the Koreans, and they stopped to try and untangle them and, and help them in order so that they could continue on down. They didn't know at this point that actually some rescuers, some high-altitude porters had been sent up after them, but you know they were doing their best to try and save these men. So what happens, the reports then then conflict as to, as to what happened next. But Marcus states that he thought Gerard was climbing back up the mountain. So basically he thought that Gerard had succumbed to altitude sickness and was just kind of acting, you know, irrationally and he had started climbing back up the mountain. At that point, Marcus decides that, you know, he's got to get down. He can't get these men out. He doesn't know what's happening to Gerard. He's got to, he's got to go. So he continues climbing down. There are other theories about what they thought Gerard was doing. A lot of the people down at the camp thought that he was going up the mountain in order to release some of the ropes so that, you know, release the ropes from a top bit so that then they could continue climbing back down. Because they could, there were a lot of photos actually that you can look at, which is from the the camp below, kind of taking photos of the mountain where you can kind of see where people are and how they are descending down the mountain. So Marcus continues climbing down and he encounters the two high altitude borders who were climbing up to try and rescue those Korean team. And again, this bit is quite unclear, but what it appears happened is that Gerard did manage to free the Korean team and they did meet those the two rescuers and they as a group began climbing down the mountain. It's a bit unclear now what happened, but apparently on a radio message, they stated that they believed that Gerard at that point had been killed by another icefall. So Gerard at this point sadly also died and wasn't coming down the mountain with them. And then tragically, moments later, before this could even be clarified, a third Serac fall happened. So a third ice hall happened. And that killed the three previously trapped Koreans and one of the rescue team who had gone up to get them. Uh, one who was climbing slower than the rest was, was thankfully okay. So this now accounts for 10 deaths on the mountain in the past 24 hours. The final death that happened was uh, someone called Muhaban Karim, who we're still pretty unsure what happened. It's thought that he was also killed in one of the falls, but no one saw, you know, no one saw what happened. No one's found his body. Still not really sure what, what happened. At this point, the final death toll now stood at 11 in that one day of climbing. And this was by far the most deadly day of climbing on the K2 mountain. So following that horrendous day, most of the team that survived continued down some were taken to helicop by helicopter to nearby hospitals. As a lot of them had had frostbite and, and lost fingers and toes, especially the ones that had stayed out in the night. And what happened with the with the eleven that died, I think I couldn't find like the exact confirmation of this, but from what I could um from what I read, the bodies of the fallen climbers were were left on the mountain. And that is generally what happens. You know, it's hard enough to climb up and down a mountain of that size anyway, to try and climb up and then carry a frozen body down just it is just far too dangerous for everyone involved. And then in the weeks that followed there were a lot of conflicting arguments for what happened, especially in the in that you know in the morning with the Koreans and what happened in in that t 
time. It took a long time to piece together the stories of different people, especially because the group didn't necessarily all know each other that well. They were often just guessing at identities or guessing from the colour of, of climbing suits who, who someone was or if they saw a body, what body that was. So it was very difficult for the families and for, for other people to kind of piece together what went wrong and how it, how it all happened. There was also a lot of criticism, especially from those from family. Uh, understandably, they're very traumatized after something like this, and there's a lot of of disagreement as to whether more people more should have been done to help the the climbers that were up there. More should have been done to try and rescue them. However, most of the climbers on that day and and in general agree that you know there's this unspoken rule really that if you if by saving someone it's putting you in danger, you you always need to, you know, look after yourself first and you need to carry on down and you need to keep keep on going if you are going to be unable to save them without also really seriously potentially injuring yourself as well. And really, you know, on that day there were there were so many different actions on the mountain. Some people did try and help others, some people didn't. Um, you know, it just really goes down to the individual person and, and their decisions and what they wanted to do in that environment and what felt safe. And then following this season, no one summited the mountain until 2011. So this really stopped, stopped quite a few people then summiting over the coming years. Trying to move on to, to what we learnt then from this really horrendous day of climbing. Well, generally, the numbers climbing K2 have remained very similar, very stable in terms of how many are going up. But there's generally been some kind of key concepts which have been reinforced and emphasised as part of this. So a big one being teamwork especially in the in managing the kind of high traffic areas. So this was a very big group of people that went up together. There was clearly going to be delays by slower climbers or faster climbers. And really, the group probably did need to work better together in order to prepare the ropes, in order to then prepare what happened next. So if you are going to climb in a group that big, it was really emphasised the, the need to, to work better as a team. The second one around making sure that the climbers would always summit by a certain time and that I think it's very tempting and upsetting when you're when you're climbing and you're so close. At this point they've probably done weeks and weeks of climbing and everything is working towards trying to get to the summit and so that that need to get there means that sometimes they will make sure that they sacrifice a bit of time or maybe they'll go just a little bit later just a little bit later but that is something that they really need to be careful of and they really need to watch and actually some of the group that did that set off on this day quite quite a few of them like a handful of them turned around really really early before any of this drama started happening because they just knew look we've already started late there's just no way we're going to be able to make it up and back in t- in time for for a safe summit and then the last one is very similar to what I just said, like don't fall foul of summit fever. So keep in control enough that you can make rational decisions about whether you should continue up to the summit or whether it's time to turn around and go back and hopefully summit again next time. 
I read into a few other kind of mountaineering disasters around this one as well. And it, I, for me, I thought that this was quite an interesting one because it wasn't one that was blamed on kind of commercialization or, or commercial guiding. On a, In a lot of other mountaineering disasters, some of it is put down to inexperience. So climbers that weren't experienced enough, they were going on a on a group tour essentially up the mountain. And that then led to, to a lot of deaths and a lot of um, issues. But that really wasn't the case in this in this day. All of the climbers on that day were they were experienced. Some of them had been up Everest. A lot of them had been up many other eight thousand meter mountains, but they still still similar mistakes were made and and similar issues were were found. And that is ultimately what led to such a tragic day. So even with all of that learnt, mountaineering is just inherently a really dangerous, dangerous sport and something I find quite terrifying. Even since that one in 2008, there have been at least 17 more fatalities on K2 and pretty much all of them have happened around or in the bottleneck. So it is just such a dangerous bit of the mountain and just such a dangerous area to be in. And actually the majority of the accidents that happen have all been on descent. So actually, I think for me anyway, I always think that climbing up the mountain is the hard bit, but climbing down the mountain is most definitely the bit that has led to the most disasters and the most injuries. listening to this episode of when it goes wrong i find this type of mountaineering stories really interesting and there's definitely some others that i want to cover in future um, and really dig into i've added some references in the show notes to uh, some of the articles and other bits and pieces that i've read but um the one that i'd like to highlight this time is the documentary the summit which was a they talk they talk to all the people that actually were there and the survivors, but they also dramatise it as well, all about the climb and all about the disasters that happened. Uh, you can find it online. I watched it on Amazon Prime. I think it was a few quid. I definitely recommend that if this is something that you've found interesting and you want to um, hear more about and see it come to life a bit more. So time again for all the things you're used to on a podcast. So please do rate, review, subscribe on the podcast app that you're on so others can find the show. And I would really love to connect with you and um, hear your thoughts on this episode and on the others. I will leave the handles that I will eventually create when I publish all of these in the show notes below so that you can you can find them. Um, and I'd definitely really love to hear if you have any requests for future episodes, if you found mountaineering interesting, if you found mountaineering as interesting as as shipwrecks that we did last time or, or whether, you know, it's maybe not as interesting for some people. But yeah, I'd love to hear what you thought and uh, do come and chat with me over there.